All right. Uh, welcome to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Today I'm going to be talking about central lines. Uh, this is kind of a content- continuation of last week where I talked about just placing IVs. And I think talking about central lines deserves, you know, an episode of, and other lines, right? I should talk about like arterial lines too. Like lines that go beyond just a simple IV. Um, like why do we, what's the use? Why do we put them in? How to put them in? And uh, maybe complications. So I'll just, I'll talk about that today. I think, I think it'll be good. I think most people like it. All right. So what is a central line? It is a line that goes on your venous side of your, of your vascular system. And it's a line that goes more central. You know, it's pretty, it's kind of in the, in the term. So a uh, central venous line. Uh, so IVs are peripheral, right? Cause they're in the periphery of the body of the venous system. Central lines are central, meaning they're more near the heart or they're more near the superior vena cava or the, or the inferior vena cava, the superior vena cava, SVC and IVC inferior vena cava are the major veins, large, large veins that lead into the right side of your heart that goes into your lungs, then comes back to the left side of the heart then goes out through the aorta. A little bit of basic understanding just to make sure everybody's on the same page. So you have arteries and you have veins. And I, I, I wish so badly that some basic anatomy was, in the United States at least, was taught at a young age. Because um, uh, the average person doesn't understand, that. Uh, I think, the difference between arteries and veins. And the difference is enormous. They're, they're completely different things. Arteries flow, <clears throat> the way to remember it, arteries flow away from the heart. They are thick, they are muscular, they are high-pressurized uh, um, vessels. Okay, so they the aorta is the largest artery in the body. It comes off the left side of the heart. the the very The left side of the heart is really muscular and very powerful, and it's pumping to the body. Arteries go away from the heart, and they feed. They're the main highways that feed that carry oxygenated blood to the to your tissues. So you have this enormous arterial tree, your aorta, and then you have all these arteries, following arteries that come off of them, like subclavians and the renal arteries, and, uh, and they turn into the femoral arteries. It's like a highway of oxygenated blood that is on its way to capillary beds to offload oxygen. And, uh, and then on the other side of the capillary bed, so these, the capillary bed is tiny, right? So arteries lead into the tiny, tiny capillary beds that are like, capillaries are like the size of a single red blood cell. That's how small they are. And then on the other side of the capillary bed are venules that then turn into veins that then all meet into the superior and inferior vena cava that meet at the the right side of the heart, the right atrium and into the right ventricle. The venous side, the vessels are thinner. They're still muscular, but they're much thinner, right? They're like a flat noodle. If you were to set it, if you were to take dissect a vein out of someone's body and put it on a table, it would collapse like a flat noodle. If you're taking an artery, it would stay rigid. It would not collapse. It's like a rigid, more of a rigid muscular tube, an artery. Okay. Um, so, oh yeah. And then veins carry deoxygenated blood, higher in carbon dioxide, lower in oxygen. They still have oxygen, but they're more deoxygenated. And a, and a lot of the metabolic uh, excess of your body back to your right side of your heart to pump to your lungs for your for gas exchange to occur, to, uh, to get rid of the carbon dioxide and then to pick up oxygen from your lungs and then carry it back to the left side of the heart to... to continue the cycle. All right. Just, that's just, I think, I think it's pertinent because this, this, you need to understand this to understand what line, you know, lines to put in central lines and arterial lines. So I'm going to talk about arterial lines as well. So, okay. So, so why do we put in central? So central lines are, they're placed right centrally into the body to, and they feed more into the central venous system. As I 
said. So why do we put in central lines? There's several reasons. I'm probably not going to, this is not exhaustive, right? I'm not going to cover everything. I'm going to, something's going to slip my mind. Um, one of the main reasons, so one of the main reasons is to, there are certain medications you cannot give peripherally in a peripheral IV. You can maybe, but you, you might get away with it, but it can be dangerous to the patient. Okay. It can be, for one thing, it can, can be irritable. There are certain medications that can be irritable to the to peripheral veins themselves because they're just smaller caliber. And if you have a caustic medication that's running through them, it can be irritable to the vein. You can, you know, you can cause, uh, you know, phlebitis, inflammation of the vein. So, and then, so there's that. But then also if I, peripheral IVs infiltrate, right? I talked about that in my previous episode. You should listen, if you haven't listened to my previous episode called Placing an IV, you should listen to that first and then listen to this episode. But anyway, but you don't have to, whatever. Uh, so I, peripheral IVs can infiltrate basically at any time, meaning they slip out of the vein and that little catheter is now leaking into the subcutaneous tissue, the actual tissue of like the hand or the arm or wherever it was placed. And now you're dripping medications right into the soft tissue. Now that can be mostly benign, right? If it's just some, some IV saline or something like that, maybe some antibiotics are okay, but there are medications that I said that are caustic and they can, so like medications like calcium chloride or vasoactive substances like um, norepinephrine or epinephrine, particularly if they're high concentrated, if they leach into the tissue, they can kill the tissue. They, you, you can, the, the skin can literally die. Not always, and usually they don't. Um, but, it, but anyway, it can be very dangerous, right? So that's why if someone is, is if I anticipate that someone is going to need more resuscitative medication, say somebody, it definitely correlates with degree of sickness, right? If someone, the sicker someone gets, the more likely they need a central line. Um, so yeah, if they need, if they need the high, you know, if they need vasoactive medications, then, uh, long-term, uh, then, you know, they should have a central line placed. Now, uh, other vasoactive medications like phenylephrine, that's okay. You can run that peripherally in the, in the ORs, we run it peripherally all the time, like literally every day, every day. Now, norepinephrine, Short term, if if I if I'm in the ICU and I I suspect someone has septic shock, like grand negative GNR septic shock that you know turns around pretty quickly and they're already getting better and their pressures are coming down, um, and they're not intubated or anything like that, I will I I feel comfortable and I'm not the only one who thinks this that running norepinephrine peripherally for a few hours, you know maybe 12 hours max, and if they need it longer than that or if they're getting worse, then okay, put it in a central line, and I'll talk about how to put it in a central line. I'll go over the basics of that as well for anybody that is interested. Okay. So there's those reasons. And then there's simply resuscitation volume, giving volume. Um, if, if I need to give volume quickly to somebody like blood products or albumin or a lot, or a lot of crystalloid very quickly, then I want a, a large bore, um, central line. Now, however, you do not need to put in a large bore central line. If you have really good peripheral IV access as well, that's very large bore, right? If I have two 16 gauge, that's very large peripheral IVs and somebody that, and I, and I've looked at those IVs and I've placed them myself and I've looked at them as well. And I know they work really well. And I, and I have someone that, Hey, I think needs blood products. I don't need to put in, you don't need to put in a central line. Um, not necessarily It all. It's all very depends on the, very much depends on the situation. Okay. Right. But that's, you know, another reason. So someone that needs long-term IV infusions, right? Someone who's, uh, having chemotherapy and they need, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of chemotherapy and they, you don't want them to constantly come in and get an IV and then get an IV and then get an IV and scar down your tissues and then make it very difficult to get IVs. They, that, that type of person uses a central line. And usually that is tunneled. Um, 
so a tunneled central line is where a surgeon will under usually under general anesthesia. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be, but uh, will will uh, place a central line like in the right internal jugular, which is a very very common site for a central line, right? The right internal jugular. These are the main vein, huge veins that that flow uh, down your neck. Um, there's two of them, and they flow down down into the down to the heart, and a tunnel. Uh, that, so that's where we place a lot of central lines. I'll talk about where to place them, other sites in a minute. But a tunneled central line is where a surgeon places a, t- a central line there, but they tunnel it the, under the skin, and so in the entire the entire catheter is under the skin, and you access it by puncturing the skin, like a little hub that's there, and then you can give IV fluids or whatever or medications for that. The reason you do that is it greatly reduces infection risk, right? Because the skin is a barrier against infection. So that's, those are tunneled central lines. Other reasons uh, someone needs central lines is like they need dialysis, short-term or maybe long-term dialysis, right? That's another major, major reason, particularly in critical illness, why someone might need central line is to dialyze their blood when their kidneys are in failure. Those can also be tunneled if someone needs long-term dialysis. You can have a tunnel line. You can also have a short, uh, more of a short-term central line. A couple other reasons someone may need a central line is they need long-term uh, parenteral nutrition. Parenteral means aside from enteral. Enteral means the gut. So if someone's gut doesn't work for whatever reason, maybe they have a big obstruction or they have a short gut or I don't know, for whatever reason you can't, they can't, they can't get tube feeds, and they certainly can't eat. Um, they get uh, T, uh, I, you know, I refer to it as TPN, total parenteral nutrition, where you have to you have to give, you know, fats and amino acids, and hey, you have to supply someone's nutritional needs t- entirely through their vein. Definitely, they need a central line, right? You can't uh, some sort of central line. Um, you can't you can't get that peripherally long term. Uh, another a reason for a central line is for monitoring for other for hemodynamic monitoring. So if you need if you want to know what someone's like CVP is, their central venous pressures. Um, if that's an important measurement for you in, in caring for a patient, I am, I rarely am I like, I need to put in a central line cause I need to know the CVP. Uh, I'm rarely just doing that as the sole indication. It's usually like, Oh no, Oh nice. Now I can know their CVP is, um, CVP is a whole, I should do an entire episode about CVP anyway. Uh, so monitoring, um, another reason would be to, uh, uh, or, or like, uh, if you want to put in a, um, uh, another way of monitoring through a central line is putting in a pulmonary artery catheter, also called a Swan-Gans catheter, at least in the United States, where you thread a uh, this long catheter into the right side of the heart, into the right ventricle, and up into the pulmonary artery. You can get a lot of, pre- you can get pulmonary pressures, you can, you can get CVP, you can get a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, which is a surrogate for the for the left side of your heart pressures. So that would be another reason, uh, you know, as a monitoring indication. Uh, what else? There's a... Um, Oh, if you needed to pace somebody, for sure. And I've, I've definitely put in central lines just to pace somebody. So if someone is in, they're in heart block or whatever, their heart's not working, they're in asystole, whatever it is, and you need to emerge and you're trying to get, and you're transcutaneously pacing and you put pads on their skin and you're just pacing their skin. And you're like, I need to pace this person's heart right now. They're going to die. They're, the, the, this is a bad situation, whatever. I'll put in a central line and you can put transvenous pacing wires. Um, there are also pulmonary artery catheters you can place that you can put a pacing wire through them. So, uh, yeah, to, to pace somebody. So those are kind of the main reasons. There's probably other reasons I'm going to forget. But those are kind of the main major reasons to put in a central line. Oh, another one that came to my mind is a, um, what's it called? Uh, Leukoreduction, uh, plasmapheresis. You know, to 
um, either to uh, so to try to get a bunch of white blood cells out of somebody that's an acute blast crisis for uh, leukemia, or or if you're trying to get rid of a bunch of antibodies from somebody in a process called plasmapheresis, that would definitely be another reason to put a central line in. All right. So anyway, so how do you uh, go about putting in a central line? Well, first you need an indication, and you need to make sure it's like it's a good indication, right? If you can hold off, then you should hold off because uh, it's not a benign thing. It's common, right? It's very routine putting in central lines. But it's not a benign thing. It's an invasive procedure, and things can go wrong. There can be complications and uh, that can result in harm and even death. Uh, so you need to have, like, a solid indication to put in a central line. And then, so what is the reason you're putting it in? Is this, is this a good reason? And then you want to think about where am I going to place this? I'm often faced with, I work in the, in the cardiac ICU a lot, and I'm often faced with a limited place to put them because a, a lot of my patients have lots of tubes and machines in a bunch of vessels already. Um, really crowding out and occupying those vessels, so I have to be very selective. For central line, for venous access, I'll talk to I'll talk about arterial access in a minute. <clears throat> for central access, the typical vessels you can put central lines in are like the internal jugular veins. The most typical is the right side because it's it's often the easiest. It's a straight shot down, right, the internal jugular vein. Whereas the left side, it, has, it there's kind of a more of a bend with the with the catheter as it goes through. But either one of those, there's the subclavian veins, and there's the femoral veins. Those are kind of like, those are the big ones of, you know, putting in central venous lines. So there's risks involved with each one of these sites, right? <clears throat> the complications of putting them in. So with subclavian, with central, with, uh, sorry, internal jugular and subclavian, you can do it, you can cause a pneumothorax, right? Uh, which is a collapsed lung. You, your tip, the tip of the needle, if you don't keep an eye on it, it can go too far and it can go through the uh, pleura of the lung and collapse the lung. Now, if you if a patient has a collapsed lung, that's a big deal, but it's something that's generally survivable, right? They may or may not need a chest tube to expand that lung, um, but that's something that can happen. It's rare. It's rare, but it can happen. Um, other risks are accidentally dilating the artery that's also occupying the same space, right? So for every vein, there's a, there's an artery sitting right there. Um, so, the, so the jugular, there's a carotid. That's right there. Subclavian vein, there's subclavian artery. Femoral vein, there's the femoral artery. So not visualizing and not doing it and and accidentally putting the uh, the line into an artery is a big deal. It's a big complication. It's rare, but again, it can happen. If you're not being careful enough, there are safeguards and checks to make sure this doesn't happen that, that I'll talk about. But And I want to be, make something clear. If you are, say, let's say you're a med student or a resident, you're an intern or something, and you're doing a central line, you're doing a right internal jugular. If, you, if you're trying to, with your needle, if you find that you accidentally poked the carotid artery, you know, like you get, you ask right back and it's bright red and it's pulsatile. You, it's okay. Okay. It's okay. The patient's going to be okay. Um, because you just hold press, you take it out, you hold pressure, um, for, you know, five, eight minutes, something like that. Make sure it's hemostatic and then continue. If you dilate the artery, then now you've damaged the artery and that's a big deal, right? You can have uh, you've now damaged, caused significant damage. You can the endothelium is now ruptured, and particularly in the carotid artery. Now you can have clotting, and you can cause a stroke and death. Um, so that's a big deal. So if you've dilated a carotid artery, you need to call vascular surgery, particularly the carotid artery or any artery. You need to call vascular surgery, and you need an emergent vascular repair. Um, so it's a big deal, right? It's a big deal dilating it. So there's safeguards in place that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to go step by step through the procedures to make sure this doesn't happen, um, accidentally dilating the the artery. Um, but if you've dilated, you're probably going to put in a catheter, 
because uh, at that point, if you've dilated, you've already fooled yourself into thinking you're in a vein, and you're just going to keep proceeding, and you're, you're going to place a catheter in like the carotid artery, which is a it's that's a that's a major major complication. Um, now, if it's happened to you, if you've done it, it's done. You've learned. Move on. Move on. You're still a good doctor. Okay, you can still be a good doctor. If I'm talking to you and you're like, oh my gosh, I've done this, it's okay. It's okay. All right. You're you're you're, you're okay. <laughs> you're a good doctor. It's okay if you've done that. You know, learn and you move on. Um, anyways, uh, what are the other complications? So the, with the femoral vessels, you know, you, you can't, you're not going to cause a pneumothorax, right? Because you're down in the, you're down right by the leg, by the groin. But you can cause a retroperitoneal hematoma if you go too far with your needle. Like up above, if you go too far with your needle, you cause a pneumothorax. But down below, femoral, you can, cu- you, you go too far with your needle. If you're not paying attention, you go too far, you can cause a bleed and cause a bunch of bleeding into the retroperitoneum. And then that can be obviously a big problem. Another uh, major catastrophic complication that can happen from central line placements are retaining the guide wire. Now, in a moment, I'm going to talk about how to put in a central line and I'll, and what a guide wire is. But that is a thing that can happen. We use a wire to guide a line through the skin and into the vessel. And that can be accidentally <clears throat> lost inside the body or retaining the wire within the venous system, like the SVC or the IBC. And that, that's a big deal, right? That needs to immediately be retrieved, usually with interventional radiology, and that can kill someone. Um, if that wire goes into the heart, goes into the lungs, <clears throat> very, that's a very big deal. Okay, so there's other, complica- you know, hematoma, bleeding, there's other complications um, that can happen, but those are kind of the big ones. So let's talk about actually putting in a central line. So I'll just, let's say we, we need to put in a, we've talked about the indications and the complications. So you got to get consent. Now I hope I, I hope I don't scare people out. Like those are the complications, but central central lines and experienced hands are very, very safe, right? I've done so many, so many, and it's just a, it's it's generally it's a very, very, fairly safe procedure. But you know you got to get consent, or you're doing it urgently. You don't need to get consent, but you should talk about the possible um, complications that can happen to your patient if they're aware and awake, or to their family members. Um, but anyway, so let's say you need to put on a right central line. So let's just go through the steps. Okay, so the way you put in a central line, we do it percutaneously. I mean, that means through the skin, right? We use a needle through the skin using using Seldinger's technique, and I'll explain what that is. Now, the other only other way of getting access to a vessel, like an artery, is by a cut down, where you actually take a blade and you cut the skin open and you expose the vessel and then you put a line through it. That's that's something only a surgeon does. A surgical cut down, right? Someone with surgical skill can do a cut down. Percutaneous means you take a needle and you go through the skin to gain access. So let's say we're doing this a right IJ, <clears throat> IJ internal jugular. So you need to get your all your equipment together. You know, and you you gotta think of the length of the catheter, how long is it for the vessel? You generally want larger length if you're gonna do the femoral, you want a shorter length if you're gonna do the right IJ, longer length through the left IJ. <clears throat> uh to to so that's more centrally placed the tip um okay so you you know you get all your materials the right line whatever and you you everything must be sterile right because infections clapsies which is a central line associated bloodstream infection clapsy are a big deal getting an infection you can i mean someone can get an infection from your central line they can you know go into septic shock and die clapsy used to has gotten a much better problem it's still a problem, but it's gotten a lot better problem as hospitals have bundled together, have figured it, figured, figured this out, and they have a, a way of 
a more of a bundled approach, protocolized approach of cleaning and placing centralized under sterile procedure. It must be sterile procedure, right? Everything has to be sterile that you're using. So what that means is you clean the neck um, with a some sort of sterile, some, some some sort of cleaning solution that that cleans it, like chlorhexidine. And and then you have to put on a sterile gown, sterile gloves, right? This is different than an IV. Those are just normal gloves. You gotta have to sterile gloves. Sterile gloves are special gloves that they don't just come in a box full of gloves. These are specialized gloves that are sterile. <clears throat> so it must be sterile procedure. You clean everything. You get all of your equipment ready. You get it out. You have you have to have a surgical drape across the patient. A sterile field is now created. Now, if a patient is awake, it's way different than if they're asleep and putting in and they're like intubated and asleep. If they're awake, I always talk to the patient. I, I walk them through. Hey, here's what the central line is going to be like, and here's what I tell them. I'm like, it's not fun. That's that's kind of what I tell them. Like, this is not going to be a fun experience, obviously. Um, and I may change my wording to based on the situation. Um, I'm like, it's I'm like, it's going to be uncomfortable. We'll give you a, and and you should give some pain and some sedation while you do it. You know, some midazolam, fentanyl, remimazolam. You should give them something, and you need to numb up the the area as well with lidocaine. So I walk them through all of that before I begin. Um, and the drape can be very claustrophobic to them. You, you need to have good airflow through that drape. Usually you need to tape it up around their face, give them some oxygen. That's if they're awake, right? And doing a just a normal triple lumen compared to a large introducer is different. Um, it's okay if you don't know what I'm talking about, but if you do, I just want to tell you, doing a smaller gauge central line, dilating, uh, you have to dilate larger for a larger introducer, like a like a cordis or a Mac introducer, and that's much more painful. The most painful part part for a awake patient is the dilation. It's not it's not the initial needle or cutting or sutures. It's the dilation. That's the most painful part. Um, anyway, so you sterile, you get all that ready. Got to do ultrasound. Okay, no more tack, no more landmark technique. In my opinion, there's no reason to do landmark technique, like a subclavian by landmark technique. You're gonna cause Often, <clears throat> not often, but you may cause a collapsed lung. So even if I'm doing a subclavian, which I don't do that often, I will use the ultrasound. Like you have it, use it. If you're not good at it, you need to get good at it. Like you need to do this under, under ultrasound. All right, so if I'm doing a right IJ, you put them in Trendelenburg, right? The reason you do that is not only does it engorge the, the IJ so you can see it better, but it helps it so you don't in, entrain air accidentally into the body into the heart if you're in if the head is down so with your ultrasound you identify your structures you make sure you see hey there i see like hey there's my internal jugular vein i identify the carotid i look for it i say there it is here's my vessel here's what i'm going for there's the carotid i'll stay away from that you get the kind of the lay of the land lay down a nice um quarter size at least of local anesthetic if they're asleep and sedated you don't need to <clears throat> depending on how awake they are right you may need to numb them up. You may not. If they're awake and if they're asleep and out of it, you may not have to. Um, if they're awake, of course you need to. So, and you do it subcutaneous, nice dime size. You lay it down of lidocaine. All right, and then you again, you're doing everything sterile. You get your ultrasound. You identify your vessels. You then take a needle, and you put it under the. You stick it into the skin, and you under ultrasound guidance, you watch the tip of your needle go into the into the vessel. As you are continually aspirating, you must continually aspirate until you get blood. What I just explained to you is very difficult to do. <laughs> it takes years, honestly, years to get good at what I just explained. Um, to actually watch your needle tip go into the vessel 
and to move your ultrasound probe in tandem with your needle hand is a very difficult skill and it takes years to develop and get good at it it really does people that are that are experienced they make it look easy um but i know and i i supervise people all the time trainees doing central lines and i know how experienced they are by how well they can do that and if they're not following their needle tip in if you're not watching your needle tip, tip in you're not doing it the safest way um, and it's hard. Sometimes you just can't really, some people just can't do it. And it's hard. You can't just teach someone how to do it. It's just something you got to struggle with and get and get better at it. But watching your needle tip go in. Don't just, you can't just like, oh, there's the shadow of the needle. I'll, I think I'm around it. I'll just advance without following it. No, that's really not the best technique. But again, it's hard to do. And despite your best efforts, you may not be able to do it. And you might aspirate blood back and you might just get it anyway. And you're, you know, you just keep going. Um, but that is the ideal technique watch actually visualize the needle tip as you advance it you visualize it enter the vessel and then you get blood return um so as soon as you get blood return you take off that syringe and now you have a needle in the in the uh, vessel you then depending on your institution and depending what you have you need to transduce that vessel meaning you need to test how much pressure is in that vessel because you need to make sure you're not in the carotid artery even if you are sure like you were like, oh, I know I'm not in the carotid. You need to look because your needle could go could go through and through the internal jugular and enter the carotid, and you didn't. You were unaware under visualization of the ultrasound, if that makes sense. So you either transduce it by by hooking up some tubing to it and lifting it up and watching the blood come come. Back. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. But if you do know what I'm talking about, you should you know just tune into what I'm saying. Um, you hook up some tubing to that needle, or you can slide off an angiocath as well into the vessel hook up some tubing and you draw the blood back and it should sink down and it should it should represent central venous pressure it shouldn't be pulsatile if it's pulsatile you're in the carotid artery you pull it out you're good hold some pressure it's fine um and then once you do that i you then you thread a, a wire a guide wire through the needle or the angiocath that you've placed and i always visualize the wire as well make sure it's in the it's in the vessel i look at it trans um uh, transverse and longitudinal as well once my wire is in then so now you have a wire in the body you always keep a hand a finger on you're always holding that wire because this is where you can accidentally retain it um you then take a blade and you nick you create a where the wire is where the wire meets the skin you then slice through the skin you're opening it up for your dilator you slice and from my experience people trainees are usually not aggressive enough they need to cut deeper than they normally would particularly if you're putting in an introducer a bigger catheter you need to cut very quite deep into the neck into the sternocleidomastoid muscle uh for the ij for, for ephemeral you need to cut very deep okay and when i cannulate on ecmo when i do this with ecmo i'll even take like an alice clamp and i'll cut and then i'll open up the fat tissue with an alice clamp for for my ecmo dilation just to give you a sense of how aggressive you need to be with ecmo cannulation anyway uh so you, di you you slice with your blade, and then you dilate. You bring a dilator over the wire. You dilate, and you should you should try to provide counter-traction. You're pressing forward, and you're providing counter-traction with your other hand. And this can be difficult. And if you're having trouble dilating, it means you haven't cut deep enough. So you need to bring it back out, cut deeper, dilate. You need to dilate. Never hub the dilator because that dilator tip is stiff, and you can, you can rupture the vessel inside the patient, which would be a disaster, right? Um, so never hub that ever ever um once you've dilated if you're doing it right you pull the dilator out and a bunch of blood just gushes back and if you're new at it you think you may think you've done something wrong because so much blood comes back particularly in a femoral vein 
um, tons of blood. But you just hold pressure. Now you grab your catheter that you have ready to go, um, primed with IV fluid, with a saline or whatever, and you thread that, railroad that, thread that over your wire, get it in place, take your wire out. Now this is where the wire can get retained. When you're taking your final catheter and you're threading it off, if you thread, if you advance your catheter onto the wire without pulling, with, and you advance the wire as well, this is where you can accidentally retain the wire. Okay, So when I'm observing trainees, I'm, this is the part where I'm like, hold on to that wire. I always make sure like that they're holding onto the wire while they're advancing the catheter. Once the catheter is in, take out the wire, and then you aspirate and flush every port because to make sure it's, number one, it's in the right place, and all those ports are working because you might have a port that's not working well, and then you need to switch it out. Make sure you aspirate and flush every single port, and you're satisfied, and then you suture it in place, and then you put a chlorhexidine impregnated um, dressing over it, and you're done. Okay. So I know that was probably, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Those are kind of the base, and that's called Seldinger's technique, right? It's the same technique that you put someone on ECMO percutaneously, Seldinger's technique, same same technique you use to uh, do an emergent cricothyroidomy. It's a needle, a guide wire, and some sort of catheter or tracheostomy tube over that guide wire. That's Seldinger's technique, percutaneous Seldinger's technique, and that's that's pretty much it. So what I've explained to you is, you know, place, placing a central line, and it's it's difficult to learn, but the more you do it, the better you get. Now, you you should never, what I just explained to you, you should do it every, it doesn't matter where you're at in your career. If you're not verifying that you are in the right vessel, like you haven't transduced, if you skip that step and because you're, you're confident, that's that's where you're getting sloppy and you can cause harm and you can accidentally dilate and put a catheter into an artery. So your entire career, I don't care if you're a day before retiring, you, if you're putting in a central line, you should always transduce that vessel before you dilate it. If you do not do that, you are putting your patient at risk, uh, and that you are not you're making you may be in the wrong vessel, and you don't know it. Okay, always do that. Always, always, always. I never not do that. I've never not done that a single time. Um, all right. I wanted to talk about arterial lines. I guess I'll make it the next episode because I'm running out of time here. I want to talk about a book. Uh, but yeah, why don't I do that next? I'll do that another episode. Talk about arterial lines. Let's move on. All right, I'm very excited to talk about this book. Once again, I basically recorded this episode just so I could talk about this book. <laughs> that's that's why I show up for this, is to talk about books. Uh, I mean, I bore myself most of the time talking about medical stuff. Uh, okay, the book I'm talking about is called Techno-Feudalism, What Killed Capitalism. It's by Yanis Vorofakis. His last name is spelled V-A-R-O-U-F-A-K-I-S. This book was published September 2023. Um, and... Uh, He's but he's a Greek economist who I've read probably four of his books now. I love him. I think he's an amazing guy. Absolutely love him, and he's extremely smart. And I'm going to tell you all about this book. Okay, it's a really stunning. This book is a stunning economic and geopolitical narrative about the current world right now. It's so convincing and well thought out that I constantly need to remind myself that this book is still just a narrative, and it's only like a you know a simulacrum of reality uh, it doesn't it's not can't be total reality not, not not to get too carried away with it right it's a narrative so i'm going to outline the thesis of this book and it takes a bit to build to what techno feudalism is so bear with me i think it'll be worth it if you listen to this i think you're gonna like it bear with me i'm gonna read i'm gonna gonna i i think this book is very timely and it's extremely important so the main crux of the book is that the balance of power has tipped from profit makers controlling the world to rent 
seekers, which has fundamentally mutated what capitalism is. Okay, that's the main crux of the book. So let's back it up. Let's start with the post-World War II economy. <clears throat> America had all the gold from providing the resources for the war to Europe and had the upper hand in the post-war economy. The Bretton Woods Conference mapped out a global plan where the U.S. would export their extremely dynamic and robust manufacturing products to Western Europe and Japan. While the U.S. maintained a huge surplus, they ensured that the dollar was used for all these global transactions with a guarantee of gold bullion convertibility. But then the U.S. lost its surplus from massive military spending, um, especially during its global fight to, against communism, um, and especially during Vietnam. The author also asserts that LBJ's Great Society lost a lot of the U.S. surplus by bringing more goods into the country rather than exporting. So America, this is when you know America was dynamic and, and producing, right? Manufacture, producing, exporting at time. The great irony is that the U.S. succeeded in doing something very similar to what the Soviets were trying to do, which was assert global control with a centrally planned economy. So yes, the U.S. and the Bretton Woods area was very much a centrally planned economy with price controls, and colluding with the corporate oligarchs to keep Wall Street in check and with capital controls, right? Nobody frames it that way, but it was and still continues to be. It's a centrally controlled economy. <laughs> Bretton Woods was a time of technocratic capitalism where profits were made from wage labor and advertisers became extremely good at crafting nostalgic products and selling the image, you know, that image to the middle class. And then you have the Nixon shock. Okay, so here's what happened. Once the U.S. started to deficit spend around that time, they couldn't keep going on with the Bretton Woods deal because it was contingent on other countries sucking up the U.S. imports and ensuring the gold dollar exchange. Only the U.S. didn't have any surplus cash anymore as manufacturing started to dwindle. Monetary inflation rose by the Fed and public debt ballooned during this time. This created problems for the Bretton Woods system because it was contingent on trusting that the U.S. could convert any global dollar into gold. But the U.S. couldn't do it anymore. So what did Nixon do? He just canceled it. <laughs> he just canceled this whole setup. Unilaterally, basically, um, Nixon said, we're not going to convert dollars to gold anymore, effectively making the dollar a free-floating fiat currency. The Nixon shock took the dollar from a very reliable IOU that could be exchanged to gold to a speculative currency overnight. That's wild, Okay. It became a speculative currency. To maintain power after Bretton Woods, the dollar was perfectly positioned as the international reserve currency, supplanting the gold standard. The U.S. then enjoyed the benefits over having a monopoly over that reserve currency. That's like owning a gold mine if there were still a gold standard, right? Instead of exporting goods, the U.S. started exporting its dollar, right? For German and Japanese and Asian imports. And then the foreign elite took those exact same dollars and invested in them back into Wall Street. This unleashed the age of financialized neoliberalism where the exotic financial products and American real estate and owning businesses became a sink for foreign investment dollars to return to their U.S. motherland. This is what Varoufakis refers to as the global minotaur, and he wrote a book about it. And this is what the global minotaur is. International funds flow back to the U.S. as a tribute to the global hegemony, which is the U.S. China eventually joined this global Minotaur deal 
and what Vorofakis calls the dark deal, where U.S. consumption was opened up to China to fuel their economy as long as China heavily invested back into Wall Street and U.S. Treasury bonds, which China did. This is one of the fundamental reasons Chinese, the Chi Chinese had such accelerated industrialization, right? It's not the communism. It's exposure to the U.S. markets <laughs> and sinking all of their money into U.S. consumption and Wall Street. Now let's jump to the rise of tech giants. Okay, so that's which is a lot of what this book is about. Apple invented a groundbreaking iPhone. For, this is just an example, right? That everyone suddenly owns. And they opened it up to third-party apps or other businesses to get exposed to customers. And then Apple simply charged third-party apps around 30% commission for purchases. Think about that for a moment. 30% third-party apps for anything that was bought over there there's a 30 percent commission for purchases on an iphone what apple is doing is not capitalism which seeks profit in open market competition what apple is doing is collecting rent google is doing the same thing with android phones amazon facebook youtube and tiktok are also doing the same thing they are all rent seekers they create a tech cloud of captured attention of customers and rent that attention to capitalists so the tech giants aren't capitalists at all. They are cloudalists. That's what Verifactus is. He calls them cloudalists. Here's the real messed up part. Feudal lords have ground rent, right? They own land, ground. And they make serfs till the land until they take a huge part of their product. With the cloudalists, they addict billions of people with behavior-modifying algorithms and then draw them in to create content that then attracts more users and more eyeballs to then charge rent for allowing access to businesses. So the cloudalists have cloud surfs, but the cloud surfs provide their product to the cloud for free, like I do on TikTok, right? Nothing like this has ever happened before. And this is what Verifaxis calls techno-feudalism, and it is the triumph of rent over profit. Profit is vulnerable to markets, right, and competition. Rent is not. It's one of the big, dif big differences. Rent flows from the privileged access to things in a fixed supply. Lots of rent seekers will profit wash their rent to make it look like they have returns on their investments, but they're not interested in profits. That's a capitalist game. Cloudalists thrive on shareholder value, even in the face of negative profits, much like Amazon. Elon Musk showed his hand a few months after he purchased Twitter. He talked about free speech, absolution, and town, you know, having the... Uh, uh, town hall that twitter was a town hall blah 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 but he likely purchased twitter because being the richest man in the world wasn't enough for him he wants to be a cloudalist free of the shackles of capitalism and the state it was clear what his intentions were when he wanted to make twitter a quote everything app like so many successful cloudalist platforms in china that have done so that brings us to right here and now in 2024 biden recently put a halt on shipping advanced chips and chip making tools to china russia and iran and blacklisted chinese chip designers the goal is to limit Chinese access to advanced semiconductors that could fuel breakthroughs in artificial intelligence and sophisticated computers that are critical to Chinese military applications. That's a quote from the Commerce Department Secretary Gina Raimondo. Under the guise of protecting national security against, quote, communism, the U.S. would very much like to halt China's technological advancement, but it's not because of communism. According to Verifakis, Biden has started a cold war with China with this move because China clearly has the upper hand with their cloudalist dominance. That's, that's what it's about. 
So now we live in a very, very weird life, right? In America, we have two political parties. We have the alt-right and the center. Instead of class struggle, we have identity, identity politics, where the labor class is now fractured into political identities who loathe one another, right? You have the left at civil war who's obsessed over like the definition of gender and punishing people with privilege and fetishizing a hierarchy of oppression, right? Just absolutely cannibalizing themselves. And it's all very, very weird and counterproductive. On top of this, most people are now prodded, manipulated, and exploited by the collateralists to consume our attention and provide free content for their machine. This fracturing of ourselves takes an enormous toll on our mental health, especially of young people. Our communities are fractured, our families are fractured, and even our personhood is atomized to a weird self-branding parody of ourselves to have on digital display. Verifacus doesn't believe that the old class struggle thing is going to work. Organizing labor, etc., all that stuff may work on the capitalists, but he says it doesn't work on the cloudalists. They're far too powerful and removed for strikes and organizing to have much of an impact. He kind of offers some very vague platitudes about using the cloud itself to mobilize action, which that's great, right? And he kind of talks about, like, imagine if all the Amazon workers didn't show up to work and all the customers didn't open the app for 12 hours. That would have a tremendous and haunting impact on Amazon, something like that. I don't imagine anything like that ever happening. There's not enough solidarity for that to happen. Anyway, there's a lot more to say about this book, but I'm going to leave you with that information. Uh, it offers a chilling narrative for our current reality that I really don't think is too far off the truth. So I highly recommend that this book called Techno Feudalism by Giannis Varoufakis. Um, check it out. Okay, we're gonna. I'm gonna read a letter. Okay, um, this person wrote. Their name is withheld. They say, first off, I absolutely love your content. Second, I'm a third-year medical student and I loved my IC rotation. I think I would like to become an intensivist. So I'm currently weighing the pros and cons of which residency makes the most sense for me. For starters, I do not like surgery or medicine, so I think those are off the table for me. That leaves anesthesia, which I'm not sure if I'm competitive enough for, and emergency medicine. But I believe EM crit is a relatively new field. What would be pros and cons to anesthesia versus EM? One thing I don't know is, are there separate fellowships for anesthesia or crit or EM, or does everyone funnel into the same fellowship? From what I've read, I feel like I get the feeling that EM crit are the new guys on the block that the job market isn't the best for. So I think, you know, I've just to tell this person and whoever, whoever else, EM critical care is an awesome specialty to go into. You do three years of critical care or uh, emergency medicine or four years, depending, and then you do a two-year fellowship, right? I've known plenty of EM critical care physicians. They're outstanding people. They're amazing. It doesn't matter what route you take to critical care. You can be an amazing critical care doctor. Um, the con is I think it would, you know, might be a little, you have a longer fellowship that you have to do. Um, and I don't think they're the new guys on the block. I think they're fewer and far between, but um, it's well known there's EM critical care. Now it's very he heavily institution dependent. You know, there might be institutions that aren't used to EM critical care and they're just not around, but there might be some where there's a bunch. It just, it really depends. So, as you go about interviewing, you know, if you're interviewing for EM, for EM, you should ask about their fellow, you know, if they have critical care fellowship, if they have critical care people on staff, that's, that would be a question that you should ask to see if it's the right fit for you. If it's something that you want to do, you should express that in in your, uh, in your critical care, or sorry, your emergency medicine interviews that you go on for residency so you can get a feel for what it's like. You should get to, you should try to get to know EM critical care physicians see what their experience is, see what advice they have, where they, what kind of regions of the country they've worked in. Um, and that, I, I think that'll really help you, help you give you, give you some insight. I, whatever you decide to do, I, 
anybody can, can make a very, very good critical care physician. It doesn't matter what route, whether it's pulmonary critical care, anesthesia critical care, EM critical care, right? And there's other critical care people. There's, I know people that do cardiology fellowship and then they do a cardi cardiology critical care, right? Or neuro, neuro, neuro critical care, right? They do, they're neurologists and they do an extra critical care fellowship. I've known kidney doctors that do critical care. There are uh, surgeons that do a you know general general surgery, usually general surgery rotation, and then they'll do a critical care, a trauma critical care fellowship. So there's lots of routes to critical care, and I think EM critical care is is great. Anyway, I hope that helps that person. Um, I'm going to wrap it up. Thanks for joining me. Um, my email is icu doctor ecmo ecmo at gmail.com. My TikTok is icu doctor. Instagram is icu doctor TikTok. Please email me if you have questions. Please leave a review if you haven't already, and share the podcast. And I'll see you next time. Thanks.